welcome to Soloish, a Washington Post podcast about being unmarried but far from alone. I'm your host, Lisa Bonos. Today, we're turning our focus to the election and specifically looking at how unmarried women vote and at their larger impact on politics. Now, in the 2012 election, single women voters made up a quarter of the electorate and were key to electing Barack Obama. So far in this presidential election cycle, they're leaning heavily Democratic. Will they decide the election once again? And when might we see an unmarried president? Is America ready for that? We haven't had one in a couple hundred years. To answer those questions and more, I chatted with Paige Gardner, who's the founder of the Voter Participation Center here in D.C., a nonprofit group that works to mobilize single women voters. She's been studying the voting patterns of unmarried women for over a decade. And I also spoke with Rebecca Traster, a journalist who's a writer at large for New York Magazine and is the author of the new book, All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. And I should note that both of these conversations took place a few weeks ago, right before Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump racked up more primary victories and moved closer to becoming Democratic and Republican nominees. It was also recorded before Donald Trump insulted Ted Cruz's wife's appearance, which I'm sure you're all tired of talking about at this point. So let's get into it. We'll start with Paige Gardner. Welcome, Paige. Thank you. I thought that unmarried women were out there voting in droves. They made up about a quarter of the electorate in 2012 and were key to electing Barack Obama. So it seems like we're quite an active voting bloc to me. Why are unmarried women a group that needs mobilization to get to the polls, in your opinion? They you know, do. it's interesting because marital status does determine whether or not you register and whether or not you vote. And they're really? underrepresented in the electorate uh, compared to their strength in the voting eligible population. So that is something the Voter Participation Center is fixing through mm-hmm. registration and mobilization efforts. Now, the key, one of the keys is um, unmarried women are more mobile. They're just more mobile than married women. They're less rooted in their communities. Uh, it's not easy to register and vote. We don't make it easy, yeah. we, and we don't make it convenient to register and vote. So you've got unmarried women who are more mobile, more stretched economically, less time on their hands, and we make, in some ways, democracy very hard. So if women are more mobile, they're not going to feel as attached to the place where they are, and maybe they're not going to vote? Is that... Partly, they're less likely to register and they're less likely to vote. Partly, they just don't know what are the rules, where are the places that I go register and vote, mm-hmm. what is the time available. Again, if you think about going to a new community in a new place, how do I register, when do I need to register, what's the deadline? For example, we have a huge presidential election mm-hmm. facing us. Yeah. We've had a lot of important primaries facing us. So as unmarried women and others, but particularly as unmarried women, see the activities around primaries and elections, there is, like with many other voters, oh, uh, many other potential voters, okay, let's now go register and vote. I want to make my voice heard. Mm-hmm. But in most states, you have to register 30 days in advance of any particular election. So all of the activities are really way after the 30 days. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a, is a timing issue. It's, but it's not only uh, affects uh, unmarried women, but it affects them particularly. 
So, so far in the presidential campaign, what stands out to you as far as trends? How are unmarried voters different from married voters in the issues that they care about? You know, what is driving unmarried women particularly is uh, a series of issues that look at the economy. These women's lives are stretched. Mm -hmm. They're stressed. They did not recover, you know, during the quote-unquote recovery. Uh, wages uh, have not caught up with uh, their bu- the buying power of their wages have not caught up with increases in expenses. They are concerned about child care. They are concerned about education. They are concerned about candidates that really address the fabric of their lives. So it's not an issues menu. Yeah. It's tell me what you're about in terms of the fabric of my life. It starts with education, the opportunities presented to women, unmarried women particularly, you know, with a higher education. Then give me a good job where there's equal pay. Give me a good job where there's a good minimum wage that I can support my family on. Give me good, you know, their childcare is critically important Mm -hmm. to these women. So recognizing how a candidate that understands the fabric of their lives is going to be critical to them. Now, how have they made the big difference? They're participating in high numbers. They are particularly young unmarried women mm-hmm. are currently in primaries voting for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and I, was so, gonna, I was wondering about that yes. split between Bernie and Hillary. Right. So young unmarried women mm-hmm. uh, and in, in many cases even older unmarried women. So they... Uh, as they, as we come into the general, these women are going to look at candidates that speak to their lives and address the kind of issues they want. And it's not only around economic issues; it's also around uh, reform issues, reform of money in politics, and reform in terms of making the government work. Paige, you were quoted recently in an article that ran on the Soloish blog about single voters and how rarely politicians talk about us. Oftentimes, candidates will talk about the fabric of American lives as being a married family, not necessarily an individual. When these candidates talk about hardworking families, does that resonate with single women voters? You raise an important point. Yes, hardworking families does resonate. But there, in terms of the voting eligible population, there are now more unmarried women who are voting Mm -hmm. eligible than married women. Mm -hmm. These are women on their own, a small proportion of which have children. So it's about how am I, as a single woman on my own, going to make it in a tough economy in, you know, 2016, 17, and beyond. So the point about we have to recognize the contributions of women on their own, and we have to recognize the unique circumstances of women on their own, while not dismissing the importance of family. Clearly, they are a part of a family, but they're still on their own. Yeah. If you look at the Democratic presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, who's appealing to single women most directly? Well, in terms of who's appealing to unmarried women, As you go through the election, I think the issue is not Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton because they are both speaking to unmarried women. Mm -hmm. There's no question about Mm -hmm. that. 
I think the starkest difference you see now, and it's going on in the primaries, and you'll see it also in the general election, Republican candidates for the presidency not only do not speak to these women and their lives, they almost demonize them. Yeah. So that is the difference. Yeah. And that is what uh, we found out in focus groups that we just conducted uh, recently in Ohio in the beginning of March, particularly as relates to Donald Trump. And what did the women in these focus groups say about Trump? Uh, that he is a bully, he's bombastic, dangerous on the world stage, doesn't understand their lives. Um, they can't imagine an America in which there would be a Trump presidency because they see him taking America back, mm-hmm. not moving it forward, yeah. but taking it back. And that's not how they see this country. It's not aspirational. His candidacy is not aspirational. And these women are all about aspirational candidates. And so if Trump were to be the nominee, could he win without support from unmarried women voters? No, he could not. Just as you saw in 2012, if unmarried women had voted like married women, there would have been 308 electoral votes for Romney, and he would have been president. These women decide elections. They will be a quarter of the electorate or more, and they decide elections. And how important is a candidate's gender when women are choosing whom to vote for? It's actually interesting because women candidates are important uh, to unmarried women, and it's one of the things that you know we're hearing about um, Secretary Clinton and mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton and her candidacy. But most importantly, they are interested in: Does that candidate share my values? Does that candidate reflect uh, my aspirations? Does that candidate agree with what I need and with what I want for this country? and for not only myself, but for others. Mm -hmm. So they get beyond the gender. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious why we're not necessarily hearing candidates address address them more directly as a group rather than by certain issues. I think that you see in candidate speeches, people saying, I met with Mm -hmm. a single mom. Yeah, you hear a lot about single moms. yeah, Yeah, you really do. And I think that's a language. That mm-hmm. language is very, very important. Single moms is a you, the, telegraphing yeah. something. Yeah. I get your life, yeah. and I'm, you know. So I think there needs to be more of that. Mm-hmm. I also think there needs to be more conversation about just single women trying to make it, yeah. uh, pay off their student loans, uh, make it in an economy where the minimum wage is not at all sufficient. Yeah. So I think there needs to be more of that, but I think you are hearing it. Okay. In the past 10 years or so that the Voter Participation Center has mm-hmm. been around, are you seeing more of that messaging that's directed at, at single women than we saw in 2012 or 2008? You know, it's interesting. Since when we began, nobody understood the importance of marital status in terms hmm. of registering to vote and voting. But we did our math, we did everything to say, okay, 
is this just something to describe or is this actually is there a causal relationship mm-hmm. and we found there was a causal relationship so now we've seen an enormous sea change people recognize this causal relationship they're targeting unmarried women they're targeting unmarrieds as a group because mm-hmm. a they're seeing their huge demographic growth and they're changing not only the politics of this country, they are changing every part of this country because of their growth and because of their power in the marketplace and things like that. So there has been a sea change in the recognition of the importance of unmarried women particularly. Right. Well, we'll be watching the numbers very closely to see how unmarried women end up voting the Good. rest of this election. Great. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's bring on Rebecca Traister, who's been writing about Hillary Clinton's presidential aspirations since her 2008 campaign. Rebecca recently wrote a book about the unmarried experience, which covers far more than politics. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I loved your book. I thought it was so interesting and timely. And in it, you cover so many facets of unmarried life. But today, let's, let's focus on politics. Unmarried women are part of so many other voting blocs, right? They're of all different ages and races, socioeconomic statuses. And I'm wondering, to what extent are they voting as a united bloc? Interestingly, after the first couple of primaries, which, you know, uh, in which Bernie did very well, um, you know, the caucus in Iowa and obviously the New Hampshire primary, um, the single women's vote was going by a massive margin to Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 I think that it's it's interesting because I think that Bernie lays out a more aspirational version of a new kind of political model that is very much the left and that more closely resembles um, something a little bit more like a Nordic style approach um, and one that would actually, to my mind, be wonderful. Yeah, you know, and be very good for this nation in which we're no longer organized in these hetero early married units, which is how, you know, we were organized economically, socially, and politically for so long, um, you know, really until the past few decades, at which point the marriage age really started to move later and the marriage rates began to fall. And we now have so many women and men living outside of marriage for large periods of their lives or throughout their lives. Now, Hillary Clinton, who I think has actually, interestingly enough, been more immersed in some of this kind of um, some of these issues for bigger parts of her career, including health care reform, including, you know, working on children's health care reform, thinking about uh, things like paid leave. Uh, you know, she actually, ironically enough, because maybe she centered some of those um, family issues, which are so crucial to supporting the new configuration of America's women and men, she has taken a more pragmatic approach that I think was less appealing to some of those early voters. But as the primaries moved on into the South and um, less predominantly white electorates, you actually saw Hillary pick up a lot of support with unmarried women um, when uh, the states were, you know, were more diverse racially. Hmm. So basically you have a split. Bernie still has advantages among young voters, although those advantages diminish when you talk about voters of color. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
it's, it's actually pretty split. And I think what's interesting is that the candidates actually don't differ that much on the policies they're putting forward, whether it's, you know, they differ in terms of how much they believe we should raise the minimum wage, but they're mostly in support of things like paid parental leave, paid sick days, subsidized quality, available, accessible, um, early education for kids, um, equal pay protections. And that, those are the kinds of policies that are going to better support a population that now has so many women living and earning and having families independent of marriage. So it's that the policies don't differ so much between Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders, but that the enthusiasm was what was where the gap was, you think? No, I mean, I think that the approach, it's like a lot of the differences between them mm-hmm. um, and how their supporters feel about them. I think that the policies aren't so different, but their approaches to enacting those policies read differently to voters. Mm-hmm. And so Bernie's vision goes further. There's no question. You know, he's yeah. for a $15 hike in the minimum wage as opposed to Hillary, who wants a $12 hike. Um, you know, he wants to he wants single payer health care. He his vision goes further mm-hmm. um, and I think is more aspirational. And so for a lot of people who think these policies make sense. They hear the the person who's who's sell, selling them bigger, yeah. and they say, "Oh, right, that's the guy. It matches what I what I need and what I want this country to be." Mm-hmm. And then there are people who hear Hillary Clinton's sort of more pragmatic approach, and I think find that appealing for a different set of reasons, which are. I think that going further may not be the practical first step. I think she has a better idea of how to work the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and those are basic differences. Those are basic differences between Hillary and Bernie. Yeah. One of them is more of an inspirational and aspirational politician, and one of them is a more pragmatic realist. And it sort of depends on which you think is the more realistic, has a better chance of working. But the policies that they're working toward are very similar. Yeah. And now, if Hillary becomes the nominee, as seems likely, will these unmarried women voters? that were supporting Bernie all of a sudden throw their support behind Clinton? History tells us that it's very likely um, that even though the party feels very divided right now, that they will eventually come together to support whoever the Democratic nominee is, especially if that nominee is running against somebody like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. And, you know, if you're talking about somebody like Donald Trump, he's also somebody who traffics in a lot of misogyny, um, just in terms of his stylistic approach, but also more largely conservative platforms don't support exactly the kind of policies that that so many unmarried women need. And one of the things that has been true of a lot of conservative dogma in recent years, and actually extending back several decades, is that they have, in fact, widely advertised a return to an early marriage model as something that is going to heal all the nation's ills. Mm-hmm. There are lots of conservative politicians and pundits who say very clearly, we have, Mar- this is something Marco Rubio said, um, we have a cure for poverty. It's not. It's a pro. It's not a special program. It's something called marriage. Mitt Romney answered a question in 2012 about how to stem the tide of gun violence by saying people should get married, get married earlier. Um, it is Republican dogma that one of the things that would that would help the nation is to reinstate an early marriage model. Of course, that doesn't reflect reality and how people are choosing to live um, in greater numbers, really, practically every day. And so, there's very little appeal for women especially who are living outside of that traditional marriage model or who have spent vast periods of their life living outside of that traditional marriage model, there's not a lot of their experience reflected in Republican platforms. And so, so far, unmarried women have, have broken hugely for Democratic candidates, and I think that there there's every reason to believe that they will in the general election in 2016 as well. Yeah, and 
I remember reading in your book uh, how critical single women were to electing Barack Obama in 2012 by you know voting for him like two to one. In 2012, they were 20 single women uh-huh. were 23 percent of the electorate, which so almost a quarter of the electorate, and they voted for Barack Obama over Mitt Romney 67 to 31 percent. So if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee and is drawing so much white male support. Will single women vote for him? Could could he win without the votes of unmarried women? It depends on how many unmarried women actually wind up participating. This is something that Paige Gardner has written a lot about. It's predicted that going into 2016, there may be more unmarried women voters than married women voters. Hmm. But, um, you know, as of last year, I think 40% of them weren't registered to vote. And in part, it's because these are populations that are hit very hard by voting restrictions. So unmarried women, and and in fact, for many of the reasons that it's so crucial that they vote and exert influence over representative government and the kinds of policies that are going to get put in place, the fact that we don't have, that so many women are living singly, many of them as mothers, um, but that 42% of single mothers live below the poverty line, you know, half of minimum wage employees are single women, many of them with children. Um, we have no good quality, accessible, affordable child care. We have no paid sick days. And the kinds of the kinds of things that voting, the kinds of circumstances that voting restrictions have created, that it takes a long time and it's difficult to figure out how to get the proper ID, how to register, you stand in line at the polls, are exactly the kind of circumstances that work against women who don't have a lot of extra time, who are working multiple jobs, who don't have reliable child care, um, you know, who who are often, those are the women who are often disenfranchised by voting restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that plays a big part. I also think it has played a big part that until recently, very few politicians were really speaking directly to unmarried women. And, and there's so much focus on the, you know, the family. And you know when it comes out of politicians' mouths that they're not thinking about all the new ways that family yeah. can be formed and shaped. They're thinking about, you know, a mom and dad and kids sitting at the kitchen table. I mean, that's, that's been the way that politicians have spoken about Americans. The Americans are asking to elect them for generations. And and as I said, you know they're not talking about, you know, they're not they're not addressing single women households. They're not a- addressing people without kids. They're not addressing same sex couples. They're not addressing, you know, all kinds of family configurations that now exist and have become norms. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also matters that politicians really haven't spoken to um, to the women who are who are not living in you know according to the patterns that were in place for so many generations. So there is this real question about how much of an unmarried woman vote will wind up registering and being able to cast to cast their vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paige was also in, in here earlier talking about how um, the mobility of young unmarried women that they're not necessarily tied to a certain place um, and registering, uh, that that was a big part of it. Right, that, that in terms of voting, um, you know, a lot of it and, and registering and being eligible in wherever you're living depends on you living there for some amount of time. And for and that, that's absolutely true, too, that um, unmarried women are more, uh, they move mm-hmm. more swiftly and more frequently, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which has an impact, too. Going back to what you were just saying about politicians not really, not always speaking directly to unmarried women, reminded me of this line in your book, uh, sort of near the beginning, where you say, for young women, for the first time, it is as normal to be unmarried as it is to be married, even if it doesn't always feel that way. 
And that second part about not always feeling normal, I think, is brought out on the campaign trail where there's so much rhetoric about families and you have this idea of a family being a mom and a dad and kids. As normal as it might feel to be an unmarried woman in the workplace or among your 20 or 30-something friends, it doesn't always necessarily feel so normal to be an unmarried woman campaigning for political office. Are there single female candidates that you're watching? There have always been single, to the extent that there have been women in politics and women in in representative government. There's actually often been an overrepresentation of unmarried or widowed um, women who don't have traditional families and children in politics because for so long, um, and this is true in a lot of realms, those were the only women who could be elected because there wasn't this question about why are you running for this office when you should be home taking care of your family, right? There were all kinds of prejudices that have been in place for lots of for, for many years, and also simply the responsibilities. When so much domestic responsibility fell to women, it was very hard for them to start careers. You can see that reflected even in the careers of people like Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton, both of whom were traditionally married, and both of whom didn't really kick into their very high-powered political careers until their children were grown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also see it, you know, there Barbara Mikulski, who's retiring this year, um, you know, uh, certainly some of the some of the uh, Elena Kagan, Condoleezza Rice. You've always seen single women in politics, and in fact, it's interesting. You can hear people having described them um, as people who could give their whole lives to politics because mm-hmm. they didn't have families. Um, so it's not that single women haven't existed in politics before, but you are seeing an increasingly normalized entrance of women with all kinds of marital and familial backgrounds moving into politics without apology. So, for example, um, you have Donna Edwards, who's running for Barbara Mikulski's Senate seat, um, who is a single mother. Mm-hmm. You have Kamala Harris running for the Senate in in California, and she is married, but she was married in her 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, there is Kirsten Gillibrand, who is the senator from New York. Now, she is married to a man, and she has kids, but she didn't marry until her mid-30s, and she had a child while she was already in Congress. Um, when she was 42. That's an example of one of the newer marriage patterns. Mm-hmm. Lucy Flores, running for Congress in Nevada, is a single woman in her, in her mid to late 30s um, who's talked openly about having had an abortion as a teenager. You're seeing this increasing normalization of unmarried experience or late married experience um, reflected in the women who are moving into the pipeline of representational government. And are they talking about that directly or is it just that you're seeing it in their bios well i think that to some extent you're seeing them talk about it certainly not apologize for it or try to explain it away i mean i think that it is important that lucy flores somebody who has spoken on many occasions about her decision to have had um an abortion when she was a teenager and been very frank about the fact that this was a choice she made for herself um and I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, Zephyr Teachout, who is running in New York, mm-hmm. is somebody who I think talks pretty openly about her experience as an unmarried woman. Donna Edwards has talked about her experience as a single mother. Um, you know, it, it, it probably matters that Kirsten Gillibrand, who I mentioned earlier, who had children, um, was married and had children in the midst of what was already kind of a high-powered political career, is the major proponent of the Family Act mm-hmm. um, that would mandate paid leave for new parents. You know, I think that whether or not these women are running on any kind of 
platform or with an you know with an identity based on their singleness it's mm-hmm. not something that they're hiding from and something yeah. that increasingly you're hearing them um, willing to address and discuss and talk about how it's figured into their political and ideological worldviews yeah interesting um, well I'll certainly be watching those candidates to see how how that gets reflected on the campaign trail one question that I've been fascinated with lately is just that you know now we haven't had an unmarried president in a really long time, in hundreds of years. How far off do you think might we be from electing somebody who is single, whether that's a man or a woman? I think that the possibility of electing um, a, a single president, an unmarried president, um, grows more realistic by the day simply because, really, in the past eight years, we've seen a tremendous expansion in, in our ability to imagine presidents who are not straight, white, married mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a black president for the past eight years. He is the son of a single mother. Um, you know, Bill Clinton was the son of a single mother. Um, you, uh, you know, we, there's certainly been two now very powerful candidacies, uh, presidential candidacies, uh, Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, we are increasingly able to imagine a woman Mm-hmm. We're certainly running for president. Um, we'll see if we can imagine her as a president. There's been the candidacy of Sarah, Sarah Palin, of Bernie Sanders, a Jewish socialist, um, of Herman Cain, of Carly Fiorina, uh, of Marco Rubio. So I think in lots of directions, we are expanding the numbers of models for presidential leadership that we can envision. And I suspect that especially as a generation of people who have lived with for whom it has been very normal to remain unmarried for some huge chunk of their adulthood, and for many of them for all of their adulthood, the normalization of the idea of an unmarried president, you know, will be happening sooner rather than later. I mean, maybe I'm optimistic in that regard, but I no longer think that sort of the traditional marriage, um, having a traditional marriage, um, having a traditionally early married spouse is necessarily the norm. Great. We'll watch out for those as well. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. After these conversations, I know I'll be listening a little more closely to how the candidates might be appealing to single Americans or failing to do so. For more on the unmarried experience, don't forget to check out Soloish on WashingtonPost.com. And special thanks to our guests this episode, Paige Gardner and Rebecca Traster, and to our producer, Pamela Kirkland. If you have questions for our guests, you can reach out to them on Twitter. Paige Gardner is at Paige Gardner DC, and Rebecca Traster is at R Traster. For more on Rebecca's book, you can check out my review of it on WashingtonPost.com or pick up a copy wherever you prefer to buy your books. And if you have suggestions for future podcasts, Holler at me on Twitter. I'm at Lisa Bonos, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.